Yeah, greetings and welcome to Thursday's Richie Allen Show. I hope this finds you well. I hope you're in fine fettle. Thank you for joining me. I've got a really interesting programme lined up for you today. Reach out to me via the usual ways, the app or the website richieallen.co.uk. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, I can't wait. Mark Windows will be on the program a bit later on this hour. It's been a while. Love Mark. Windows on the world.net. I know you've checked him out. Check him out again. Do it again. Do it now. Don't do it now. Right until the end of the program. I look forward to hearing from you. No doubt you will want to opine. You will want to chime in, chime in, chime in. Do that, as I said, via the app. If you haven't downloaded the app by now, I'm very, very disappointed in you. Download the app and please do leave a review for it at the Apple Store or Google Play. That's about right, isn't it? Yes, lovely. Cold today. Do you feel it today? It depends on where you are, I suppose. I felt it a bit today. Yeah, it's these um, yeah, these old bones today. A couple of things caught my eye. I don't know. Sadiq Khan, we've talked a lot about Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London in recent times. Ulez and all of that stuff. Mayor's question time had to be cancelled today at the London Assembly. Did you see that? Because somebody heckled Sadiq Khan and then somebody else threw something at an Assembly uh, member while they were in session. Little sign, maybe? Little sign of discontent in London? I don't know. I don't know. I heard from a colleague today, who I can't name, because he would get into trouble, but uh, he was telling me about a campaign that he isn't a part of, but the campaign he is aware of, to cover cameras in London and to mess around with the ULES equipment. So, uh, yeah, as I've said a thousand times before, it's only right and proper that I don't endorse anything or encourage anything. All I can say is I understand it, but I can't endorse it. But yeah, that's carrying on at a pace, apparently, those people going around and interfering with ULES cameras in London. So Sadiq Khan had to run out of the assembly. I don't know if he ran, but he had to leave at a pace in any case. Yes, um, you know, there was a cabinet reshuffle in the week. It doesn't matter a damn, does it? But there was a reshuffle in the cabinet. And James Cleverly, who had been the foreign secretary, he stepped into the shoes of Suella Braverman. He's now the, what would you call him, the home secretary? Yeah. And he said something very interesting today. He addressed a policing conference in London. And he told them something very interesting. I have to celebrate you, baby. I have to praise you like a should. That's right, he told him he'd praise them. Yes, James Cleverly, who's had every job, every job in the Conservative Party. He's even been the chairman of the party, hasn't he? Or deputy chairman. Uh, he told UK police chiefs today he will praise them in public and he will criticise them in private. He'll never stoop to the levels of Suella Braverman. She wrote an article in the Times, didn't she, which ultimately led to her demise, saying that officers were playing favourites when it came to protests. That's what she said at the time. She was sacked on Monday. He's got the job and he's told a policing conference that whenever I speak about you in public, it'll be to praise you like I should. But um, anything that I want to criticise, I will do it in private. Lovely. James Cleverly. Roger Waters went to see him in the summer with Paul, our great engineer and friend. I didn't enjoy myself. I did. I enjoyed Paul's company. Paul's great crack. He's great to be around. But um, I came away even more convinced than ever before. 
I said Roger Waters and the music of Pink Floyd is not for this Baldy Gammon I just don't understand it I'm not smart enough to understand the music of Pink Floyd so I left that night bemused but having had a good night anyway apparently and we should pay attention to this because this is social crediting isn't it imagine in the near future dear listener you are on a trip through your beloved Blighty. You've decided that you've been to Fuerteventura. You've been to the Canaries. You went to Disneyland in Paris. You went to Disneyland in Florida. You did all of that old shite. But you've decided now is the time to explore your own country. In the near future. In the near future. Think of your man's TV show. Channel 4, I can never remember the name of it, Dystopian Future, Charlie's Programme. So you're in, you get the camper van, not the camper van, no, because you could sleep in the camper van. So you get the old, the old, the old, the old, the old station wagon. We don't say station wagon here, what do we say here? We say estate, that's what we say. And you decide anyway, you're going to travel from John O'Groats to Land's End, and everywhere you go, you're declined. So you go into, uh, I don't know, I don't know, Premier Inn. And you say, have you any rooms? Yeah, we have plenty of rooms. Give us your card there. And they look at the card and they go, sorry, we don't have any rooms for you, you anti-Semitic bastard. That's happening to Roger Waters because uh, he's accused the Israeli lobby of getting him barred from hotels in South America. The Israeli lobby. He's, a, he, he's not more specific than that. He doesn't name names, but the Israeli lobby. He's touring This Is Not A Drill Tour. Terrible shite, to be honest. But anyway, I'm in the minority of one. Everybody else loves him. So he was due to be in Montevideo on Friday, then Buenos Aires next Tuesday and Wednesday. But he told Argentina's Pagina 12 newspaper, that's Pagina 12, he has no choice but to stay in lodgings in Sao Paulo, Brazil, because he couldn't get a room in Argentina or Uruguay. Now, because he's been declined, because he's an anti-Semite. And this is coming, dear listener, in the future. It's coming to you, you you anti-vaxxer bastard, you. It's coming to you, you hateful anti-trans person. You'll be trying to get in somewhere. It won't just be the cinema. No, it'll be hotels. It'll be everything. But anyway, look, Roger, don't don't cry for Roger Waters. He's 97 years of age and he's seen the, the entire planet, which is round, at, at least five times over. In fact, he was due to meet with Jose Mujica. You might remember Jose Mujica. You don't. Ignoramus, he was the former president of Uruguay, and he's a friend of Roger Waters. The president once accused Israel of committing genocide in the Gaza Strip. That was back in 2014, Operation Protective Edge. It was genocide. They bombed a load of babies back then too, 500. This time they've said, we'll see the 500, and we'll, well, we'll, we'll quadruple that, at least. Anyway... Listen, Sophie Cook is a man. If you're into the trans debate, you might have heard of Sophie Cook before. Sophie's a man. Don't let the name fool you. He was once, might still be a Labour Party politician, Sophie. Um, he's no more of a woman now than, I don't know, than John Pertwee in Wurzel Gummidge garb. He's not a woman, right? But he thinks he is. And he's also some sort of hate crime ambassador. Whatever the hell that means. He's a hate crime ambassador, Sophie. Now, Sophie made a video and put it online. This isn't a parody. I retweeted this this afternoon. He called his bank. Santander is his bank. This tranny dude. By the way, when I lived in Spain, when we lived in Spain, we used to bank in Santander as well, which is a money laundering institution, Santander. Talked about this on the radio in Spain. Nearly got sacked. Honestly, I was on the radio in Spain one night and had no guests. No, I did have guests, but I had a whole hour to fill by myself. 
and I decided I'd start questioning why banks like Santander spend millions and millions and millions of pounds advertising with Formula One and other sports. Why? What's in it for the bank? You can't say that what's in it for the bank is customers. You can't tell me that. You can't tell me that it's sufficient business. You cannot tell me the payoff is good enough. Right, you spend millions and millions and millions and millions on sporting events. You can't tell me, well, they attracted sufficient business to cover the outlay for the advertising. I don't believe it. So I went on the radio in Spain one night and ranted on for an hour about how this was money laundering and how probably they were in league with probably massive criminal gangs in South America. You know, the, the cartels, the Mexicans, the head choppers make ISIS look like a tea party. You know those guys. So, yeah, but apparently um, that wasn't good enough. And somebody in the Ayantumiento in Marbella got in touch with the radio station and said, you better stop that Irish guy before somebody chops his head off. And that was the end of that. But Santander, right, it operates in the UK. And this tranny dude called Sophie wasn't happy with the service. And at this point, it's only right to say, Q vaudeville. Here's Sophie putting a video on social media. Sophie's a man. So here I am outside Santander in Hove. Uh, this morning I went online and spotted a number of fraudulent transactions on my bank account. Now Sophie spotted a number of fraudulent transactions on his bank account. A number of them. He just happened to spot them. It's a bit fishy this. Uh, I rang up their online banking to uh, report it. Really sounds feminine, doesn't he? Went so, so he rang up to report it. Went through all of the security checks. Um, went no, through all the security checks, like? No problem, obviously, because it's my account. Uh, but still couldn't talk to them on the phone because uh, my voice is not perceived to be that of Sophie. My voice is not perceived to be that of a Sophie. I don't sound like a Sophie. So they said, look, no, sorry, you're going to have to come in and see us. So um, I was just wondering when uh, perceived gender became one of the security questions. So when does perceived gender, when had, when did perceived gender become one of the security questions? Ask Sophie. I've already spoken to Sussex Police, who I'm a hate crime ambassador for. What? Spoke to Sussex Police? Complained, Santander. You better be careful, Sophie. Um, Complained, Santander, to Sussex Police because because you're a hate crime ambassador for Sussex Police? You shit me? Uh, and they actually want it reported as a non-crime hate incident. Love this. A non-crime hate incident. This is purely Orwellian, this, isn't it? All oh, this is Orwellian writ large. Yes, Sophie, we're very sorry to hear this. We're going to record this as a non-crime hate incident. We'll give you a number. This is what they do. They give you a number. A non-crime hate incident number. And they say, we'll look into it. So, sorry but sorry you had to be misgendered. Or sorry they didn't believe you were a woman because you don't sound like one. So, we'll record it as a non-crime hate incident, Sophie. Because the law allows for any kind of perceived prejudice... Uh, to so hear this, it allows the law allows for a perceived prejudice. So you could walk into a police station and say that you perceive that you were prejudiced, that somebody was prejudiced against you, and they'll record it as a non-crime hate incident. I could do it. No, th this is not a joke. I could do it. I could wander into Salford Central Police Station and say that somebody was prejudiced against me because of my accent and because of my Irishness, and they would record that and the person's name, the accusee, the accused. Mad stuff this, isn't it? Again, Orwellian. To be recorded as, um, as unacceptable, and so... Um unacceptable. It's unacceptable that they said to me this morning, you don't sound like a Sophie to me there, lad. I'm gonna, about to go in and see them, uh, and the problem is that I'm talking to them on the phone this morning, and my account's been 
compromised and I'm feeling vulnerable and yet they are unable to help me. So let's see what they say in a branch. So in Sophie goes into the branch and then Sophie comes back out of the branch and the bloke says this. Well, I've just come out of Santander where we cancelled my card and ordered the new one. Uh, Cancelled the card, ordered the new one, yes, all sounds very routine so far. Um, I did get called Sir twice. In got called Sir twice! In the process, <laughs> including once in response to me actually pointing out to them that my account said miss. It's ma'am! Uh, which was quite disappointing. So, Santander, you really need to sort out your trans awareness training. Trans awareness training? You need to pull your socks up there, Santander, and get your trans awareness training. Get it back in step with the rest of the country. And um, I will be taking this up with the uh, people online. I'm not going to be arguing in the, in the branch. I'll, I'll well done, talk Sophie. to you online. Well, to be fair to Sophie, did make a big scene in the branch, decided that he will take it up online. And this all ends, of course, when, when common sense wins and the person responding from Santander says, listen, you dickhead, you're a bloke in drag. Get the fuck out of the uh, branch now and take your account and your business somewhere else. It, it couldn't be simpler. It's coming up for 13 minutes past the hour. Sophie. Yeah, Sophie. Sophie was in the news a couple of years ago because he was allowed to enter a... was allowed to put forward a candidacy, I think, in a role that had been exclusively reserved for women, you know, the ones with the ovaries. As far as I remember, maybe it predated COVID. I don't know. This is the Richie Allen Show. By the way, I'd love to hear from you today. My website is richieallen.co.uk. The app can be downloaded. I know, I know, you're, you're threatening to kill me if I mention the app again. You're, you're, you're screaming into an empty room. I'll kill him if he mentions the app again. But I'm mentioning the app again because, God damn it, very little money was spent on that app. No, no, good money was spent on it. That's why I want you to download it. It was your money, you know. Embedding. Let's talk about embedding. Where did it come from? It came from Vietnam. But if you go online and you look it up, it'll tell you it began in the Second Gulf War. But it began in Vietnam. It didn't begin in Vietnam. Vietnam inspired embedding. What does embedding mean? Well, it means a journalist will embed himself or herself with a, with a platoon, uh, uh, a military force, a group of soldiers, a battalion you might say. Now, why did, did this happen? Now, as you know, I'm a history graduate, which means I'm full of shit and that I learned to regurgitate the thoughts of others, but I don't do that anymore. So embedding basically came out of the Vietnam War, right? The establishment had kittens. They absolutely shit the bed after the Vietnam War. Why? Well, because the reporting on the Vietnam War was horrific, right? Reporters brought the carnage of war into people's living rooms while they were having their dinner, and it made them physically sick. Not only did Americans see war for what it was, but also saw its own military. People saw their own military for what the military was. Oh, we can't have that. We don't want people to know what really goes on in war. We don't want people to be asking, what the fuck are we doing in Vietnam? So... The idea to embed was born, and it really flowered, it really blossomed in Iraq too. Right, if you embed the journalist with the invader, he or she will come to depend on the battalion, will form relationships with the mostly men and some women in the battalion, and therefore they are more inclined to report a positive um, view, or report positively on the military unit they are stationed with. This is a fact, right? 
Is the Pentagon dreamt this up? And of course, the Pentagon, the sure lying bastards they are, back in the days before the second uh, Gulf War, they said that the embedding was really for the reporter's safety. Eh, eh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was to control the narrative. You know, they knew Iraq War Two. they knew Afghanistan, they knew they were going to kill hundreds of thousands of men, women and children in Iraq and Afghanistan. We can't have people telling people back home, right, in Little Rock, Arkansas. We can't have it in, in Fayetteville, in Fayetteville, in North Carolina. We can't have people knowing what the hell is going on in Iraq. So we'll embed the journalists and we'll control the narrative. Have you watched Douglas Murray lately reporting on British television, Piers Morgan and Talk TV and Julia Hartley Brewer? What a shit show Douglas Murray is. I'm not a violent man anymore. I used to be a long time ago when I say I used to be violent. I never raised a hand in anger against anybody that ever did me no harm. But I used to solve my problems years ago. I would put my fists up. I'm not proud of it. It's a long time ago. Uh, and I hate it. And I renounce violence as a means of resolution or resolving a conflict. I'd love to spend 10 minutes in a ring with Douglas Murray. What a shit show he is. I mention embedded because Murray is embedded with the IDF in Gaza. And his reports for Talk TV are worse than Comical Ali in Baghdad in 2003. Remember Comical Ali, Saddam Hussein's propagandist, while Baghdad was in ruins telling you everything was fine? Remember him? And that's exactly who Douglas Murray is. He's a disgrace to journalism. And I'd love to get my hands on him. Because I value journalism. I value honesty. The truth. No matter what it is. Even if you don't like it. Even if it's a side, even if it's a group that you admire, even if it's a side you want to win, you tell the truth. And Douglas Murray is a disgrace. Ah. Yeah. Leave it, leave it, leave it, leave it. I'm going to leave it. Do you see the video, um, the, the Israelis, the, the bullshit video the Israelis have put out saying that we found, um, we found Hamas. You, you see this video? You seen this video? We, we found... The Al 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 I can't say it. Hospital, you know the hospital. They said, "Look, we found evidence that Hamas were were using the hospital as a as a as a what would you call it a a a command unit." Uh, complete nonsense. They placed a few handguns and a few rifles, and even the BBC, to its credit, to its credit, the BBC is saying, "Well, we're not, you know, we're not taking this at face value because you've wrecked the hospital." You've forced most people out of it. You've obviously set up this little display for us and now you're telling us that Hamas were operating out of the hospital. Let's um, get some opinion on that. Here's a really good opinion. Not because it suits me, but this guy is Professor Nick Maynard. You've probably seen Nick. He's a surgeon and he has often worked out of that hospital. The hospital. He was on BBC News 24 today. He was also on Sky News today. Um, he was asked about the situation first and foremost. The situation in Al Shifa Hospital is quite appalling. Um, Excuse me, Al Shifa? Yes, not Alifa. Al Shifa Hospital. Neither I nor any of my colleagues have managed to talk to our direct contacts there for thirty-six hours. Um, we have spoken to them regularly prior to that, and I've spoken to other friends and colleagues outside Shifa Hospital in Gaza who have been in contact with some of their colleagues. And the situation there is. Is, is quite appalling. There are roughly 500 patients left in Shifa. Um, none of the aid that the Israeli government say is going in is getting to those patients or doctors at all. 
Um, there is no electricity. There's no fuel. Um, patients in kidney failure who require dialysis are not getting dialysis and therefore will be slowly dying of their kidney failure. Um, so all the patients there are not being treated adequately and will inevitably die unless the siege is lifted, unless there's a ceasefire. Imagine that. It's a horrendous situation there. The presenter has a question for him. Professor Maynard, I understand you've been to Al Shifa some 30 times. When you look at footage that the Israeli Defence Forces are providing, that they say shows weapons and explosives and uh, Hamas's use of Al Shifa for military purposes, uh, what is your response to that? Uh, I have seen no remotely credible evidence that that is the case. Um, I've been to Shifa on many occasions, not quite as many as you say, um, but I have always had unrestricted access throughout the hospital. And, and, and far more important than my experiences, my very close friends and colleagues who have worked in Shifa Hospital for decades and for the last four or five weeks have been living there, and who I would trust implicitly because they've been friends for many years, have seen no evidence of any Hamas soldiers in Shifa hospital, have never had any restricted access to any part of the hospital. So I have heard of no evidence supporting the Israeli claims. Um, of course, no, we, I have no idea of what's going on in any, any tunnels underneath, but I can say with absolute clarity. On the tunnels, the Israelis have had to admit that the tunnels have been boarded up. They've been concreted up in that area. This is true, I'm not making this up. So, there's certainly no Hamas in the tunnels under or near the hospital. None, right? And as this guy said, no doctor, uh, nor, nor was he, denied access to any part of that hospital. Hamas were never there. So the Israelis have staged this tiny little display of weapons. What a shower of lying, murdering, genocidal bastards they are. And by they, I mean the IDF. I don't mean Israeli people. Because a lot of Israeli people are completely against it. Genocidal, lying, motherfucking maniacs. That's what they are. There was a horrible report on Sky today. Mark Stone. Horrible. I don't know if you saw this. And he showed all of these Palestinian men, women and children marching in a line with their documentation in their hands past their own houses, which were flattened. Basically being kicked out of their own country. And the Israelis refusing the Sky reporter, the opportunity to go and speak to these people to say, what's going on? How do you feel about all of this? It's rotten, really. I don't care what side of it you're on. You might be Jewish listening to me. You might agree with me. You might be Jewish and you might have a lot of time for Israel and for the existence of it. I respect that. But you can't tell me this is right. You know, and as we've said, we said this back in October. We said it back in October. The plan was for them to stay there, make the place completely uninhabitable once and for all, and for the Israelis to stay there. That's what's going on. And nobody's going to do anything about it. Let's leave it alone for now. It's coming up for 23 minutes past the hour of 5 o'clock. This is Thursday's Richie Allen Show. Uh, the Papers is doing okay. Thanks for listening to The Papers. Give a bit of cross-promotion here. Every morning, weekday morning, Monday to Friday, I do a little podcast where we have a look through the papers, find one or two interesting stories. It's only 23 to 25 minutes long, and it is there, and it will be there every Monday to Friday from now on. And I meant to mention at the very top of the programme, I've got a little announcement to make at the end of this programme. After we've had a chat with our friend Mark Windows, I've got something to tell you about this programme. There's a little change which will come into effect next week. Nothing that you should be worried about at all. But uh, I'll tell you all 
about that a little bit later on. Hi to Bill, who says, Douglas Murray is openly gay. But what's that got to do with it, Bill? He says, some gay men, like one bloke on GB News, are extreme right wing, which seems contradictory as they are openly gay. I know I get your point, Bill. My apologies, mea culpa. Yes, I know quite a few gay people. And I can't think of a conservative gay. You know, politically conservative, I mean. That's a good point. It's interesting. Murray's a disgrace to journalism. I hope he hangs his head. I hope he lives out the rest of his days mortified at himself because I'm no grandstander. I'm no martyr. I'm a bit of an idiot most of the time, but I've said to you, I have never gone to air in over 20 years and said something that I knew to be false. I couldn't do it. Nothing. There isn't enough money. There isn't enough wealth in the world that could make me do that because that is all I have. I'm not good looking. I'm not fighting women off with a stick. Right? I'm not driving Ferrari Testarosses. I don't have a house in the Hamptons. None of that shit. And I wouldn't take it over my word and my integrity. You can listen to this programme. And and you do. And you think a lot of the time I think he's gotten that wrong. He's full of shit. But that is what I think at the time. I have never gone on air or online and said something I knew to be untrue. Ever. Nobody ever paid me off. I was never bought. You couldn't pay me off. And that's all I have. And that's all any journalist in the world should be, is somebody who is completely incorruptible. No, no, I will not take your money. I will not say this. I will not say that. Fuck off. I will say it as I see it. And I'll be able to sleep at night. I'll be able to go to bed. How could Douglas Murray, the lies he is vomiting out onto the British airways, how could he, airwaves even, how could he sleep at night knowing that just a few hundred metres, a couple of kilometres away, children are being blown to pieces in Gaza by the scumbags that he is embedded with. I have no idea. I don't know. Maybe for some people money is enough. I have no idea. Uh, thank you, Bill. Uh, hi to Robin Birmingham. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Leslie says, I think it was John Pilger whose single-handedly ended the Vietnam War with his documentaries embedded in the US military. Leslie, I don't understand that. You need to type that again. I know who John Pilger is, but Pilger had nothing to do with embedding, um, to be honest. I don't get that, but you might want to send that to me again. Right, it's time for a tune. Uh, it is Thursday's Richie Allen Show. Mark Windows is standing by and will be with us in a few minutes' time. It'll be great to catch up with him again, so it will. I'm Richie Allen, the BBG, live from BBG Towers in the heart of the great city of Salford, and this is Debbie Harry. Yes. God damn it. Yeah, I'm a child of the 80s, Debbie Harry. I want that man. It's fast approaching 5.30 here in the northwest of the UK. They're forecasting very, very cold weather in the days to come. Sub-zero temperatures. I'm just reminding you, if like me, you are addicted to jogging. I say jogging. Running would be a stretch, really, these days. Anyway, thanks for the messages thus far. Thanks for the compliment. Not the compliments. Thanks for the kind words for my guest, Mark Windows. You love Mark. He's a wonderful researcher, about one of the sharpest researchers I've known 
in my time in independent radio. He's also a great broadcaster. He is the producer, the editor, the chief cook and bottle washer and presenter of Windows on the World, which can be seen online, everywhere, YouTube, the whole lot. But uh, go to windowsontheworld.net for more on him. Welcome back to our show, our good friend Mark Windows. How are you doing, Mark? Hi, Richie. Good to have you on, pal. What's it like where you are? Is it getting cold? Bit of burr going on there? Well, when the sun's out, it's actually very pleasant, but there have been some very cold nights recently, but it makes all the difference with a cloudless sky, I find. And you can see the stars, can't you? I read a fascinating article recently about how in UK cities, I suppose it's everywhere, but in UK cities, the street lighting and the LED lighting means that we don't get a good look at the stars like we did when we were kids. It's important, that, isn't it, to be able to see the sky? Absolutely. And I'm able to get out into a wilderness here. I've always liked being in nature, but it's quite exceptional here. And you can see the stars, but not only that, you can see shooting stars. You can see everything that's going on up there. Fantastic, mate. And does that, I mean, you've always had an interest anyway in what's beyond this planet. But does that, you know, does that add to that when you can see it? I mean, has it renewed your interest in what's outside of this realm? Oh, yeah. And of course, there's so little we know and there's so much to learn. And there's so much mystery out there. That's really why I love doing what I'm doing. I'm constantly fascinated. Yes. And the aspects of who we are, where we came from is all part of that. Definitely. Fantastic. I'm going to do something we've never done before. And listeners have prompted me to do this. There's a few basic questions I've never asked you. I've just kind of taken them for granted. But a brilliant question. This came in from Jackie. Jackie's in Dundee. How are you, Jackie? Uh, Never misses windows on the world. Good stuff, Jackie. I'm assuming Jackie is a lady. Might be a bloke, but I think Jackie's a lady. Um, Where did it begin, Mark? It is a great question. I've never asked you this before. I mean, at one time or another, we thought that things were pretty hunky-dory on this, um, in this go-round in this country. And, you know, you're a musician. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, you know, for you, life was pretty fun. I'm not saying it isn't now, but, you know, you're out there like, a, like, like most lads. You're dating, you're out with your mates, you're writing music. But something happens to all of us when we start to think that something is not quite right. Do you remember what it was for you? Our listeners want to know. What was it? Well, I found that a very good question, Richie, because actually when I was about 14, 15, I was really into music and I started out playing the drums. Then I joined bands. I started touring with bands who were much older than me. And I went to lots of gigs and I was in a totally different environment. And I've always been attracted to that side of things. I still am. I got up and did a couple of numbers with a a band the other week who'd come over from England years ago. And they actually consisted of members, one of whom was born in Walthamstow in hospital, in Thorpecombe Hospital. So we're like 2,000 miles away from there nearly. And just fantastic. I got up on stage with them and it it really was great fun. And the crowd loved it. And so I've had that side of me, which I don't really know where that came from. But I think it's like the adrenaline and the buzz of it. But that's not really me. And so I've always thought very deeply about things. And even when I was very, very young, I was doing this. So I had like these two sides. So I'm able to be gregarious and communicate. But the bigger side of me has always been reflective and about learning. So I started to get into the occult, the things that are hidden. And I read as much as I could and got up to date with just about everything I could read. And I kind of went away from all the things I'd been taught academically. So I found that in school, I had been kind of 
fated early on as being very bright. Basically, I wouldn't keep still. And um, I, I had an ability to be able to take things in. But when I went through the academic system, that failed because the way they were teaching, the poor teaching system and the, the, the stuff that I know now actually explains all that. But at the time, I didn't know that. So I was searching for new information. And I think when you start looking at where you've actually been lied to blatantly with audacity, this is a really good point for actually focusing you on real research and looking into things. Because there's many people who've got academic qualities, but they just tend to get hoovered up and then they just spend the rest of their life repeating. Yeah. Not all academics, of course, but I think I went through a very different route. So I went through a kind of anarchic route. And then I got into this kind of thing. Well, actually, I could quite easily be a monk and be a complete recluse. But there's this other side of me that actually I, I love the adrenaline of getting and jumping and the, and the danger of being in front of a crowd. And after a while, I, I spent a long time doing that. So there's two parts of what was going on. So I was touring around doing this crazy show. And then I'd be doing, like even at TPV when we were there, I, yeah. I think it was originally suggested <laughs> I should do a Sunday morning show at 8 a.m. And I said, I said, no way, no way. I've, I've been out Friday and Saturday yeah. in lands beyond Kent, you know, <laughs> as far as Sheffield. Yeah. Um, and I'd get back at four or five in the morning. So I'd be in no position to do a show at 8 a.m. on Sunday. So the, the two things have, have been running alongside each other for quite a long time. And it was quite interesting that recently um, some friends of mine said, get up, get up with the band. And I just loved it. It was just, it, I kicked into it again. And so I can have fun, but I'm also, the, the bigger part of me is, is kind of very intellectually based, I think. You, um, when, when you were, so you're looking into the occult and you're looking beyond. That just means hidden, really. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. And you're looking beyond academia. Were you able to, in the early days, apply the same scepticism to everything you read about the occult and everything you, you read about hidden history? Were you, because I know the answer to this, but my listeners will expect me to ask you. So while you rejected conventional academia, quite rightly, because it is, well, here's what, is reality and we want you to rewrite this and give it back to us and then we'll give you an A and we'll give you a first and we'll send you off to a job. So you you saw the wrong with that and you started to look elsewhere. Now, did you find it important? Were you able to apply the same scepticism when you were reading things that really interested you? Like were you cross-referencing and checking everything? Well, there were certain points where I would get like a revelation and certain things would join up. But of course... When I'd been through the school system, I left quite early. I left when I was 16, 17, and I went into a completely different world. And I didn't have any further education. So I had to put it all together for myself. But I, I don't quite know how to answer that, because when you start off, of course you don't know. You have to start putting things together. And I think it takes a long time. I don't think it's something that you can encompass completely straight away. It's taken me a long time anyway, because the way that I can now look at systems and systems of governance around the world and understand them instantly. Of course, I couldn't do that when I started. I didn't know anything about that. But what I did find was that there was a lot of collectivism even then. So even with that sort of punk rock movement, a lot of them turned out to be these sort of kind of they're like activist 
Aktorvist kind of Marxists, and they've still stuck to this kind of ideology. And a lot of them are in their 60s now. And I, I find that really puzzling that people haven't moved on because the idea, of course, with the youth thing is always to collectivize it and always to steer it. And I found that when these people were talking about politics when I was 16, 17, I was thinking they seem to be missing something here. There seems to be a naivety and a collectivism to what they're doing. And I thought, why aren't they trying to think outside the box more? And of course, a lot of them never did. And they're still in that same box. Great answer that. I totally get that. B before we talk about some of, some of the recent episodes of the podcast, which have kept me company on my morning runs, Mr. Windows. Oh, glad to hear that. Um, no, always, pal. Um, I wanted to, to, to ask you, just for a couple of comments on current events and where you see them fitting into the agenda. Look, we've learned, and I've learned through the researchers who come on this programme, yourself included, that we look at something like Gaza, and quite rightly, we're all aghast. We all think it's horrible. It's demonic. It's beyond anything. And that's the murder of anybody, regardless of who they are or where they come from. It's absolutely wretched. And we'll rail against it and scream against it. And we'll go marching in. Well, I won't because I, I consider myself a journalist. But we march and we say enough's enough, enough's enough. But there's also something else going on, which is difficult to explain to people. You have the lingo. You have the way of putting it. This is part of an overall agenda, isn't it? What's happening in Gaza. It's not just about the Israelis. It's not simply that the Israelis want to finally, once and for all, get the Palestinians out of there and into Egypt and elsewhere so that they can finally take over the rest of the land. While that might be true, there's something else going on. How, how do you see what's happening at the moment? Well, I think that there's groups within Judaism that have been led into uh, Zionism, which was British Israel, of course. We, have, we can't really say Israel without saying Britain because Britain is a huge part of that. But when we look at the Od Yinon plan from the 80s, that is definitely what's going on. So your kind of summation there is what it's about, the greater Israel, but the resources of all that and the balkanization of the Arab countries, um, along with the complicity of Saudi Arabia, is a big part of it, I think, because recently I was studying the whole of the kind of infiltration of what happened with the groups such as the Don May, the conversos, the, those that converted from Judaism outwardly to Islam. And we have to look at this as a long-term thing. So when you start looking at the different factions within, you can see where this hatred is coming from. But it's actually really just part of a, a plan that's ongoing because it's all about the wars now are all about resources. And the whole point of this, I don't think, is about the taking just of land. It's basically about a system being put in place that balkanizes those Arab countries. And so that they are completely, this is the idea, I think, going to come under control. And of course, that balkanization and this greater Israel plan goes as far as Iran. It's a huge area. So that's what I see going on. But of course, when we look at the audacity of what Israel did, the absolute audacity of it. And it's so obvious what's behind that, that the real and the stated goals are totally separated by the media. Therefore, nobody is actually addressing the issue. And that's the problem, I think. Yeah, one of their... It's, it's late in the week, even though I had Monday and, and Tuesday off, but um, 
yeah, one one of their 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 prime minister in 1992. I don't think it was Rabin. It might have been. Well, he basically said, you know, in so many words that, you know, we want Israel will control the region. It'll control um, Palestine. It'll control, as you said, what what we call the Greater Israel Project. So there's no doubt about that. And this balkanization. So is this kind of like a union then? Is that what it well, is? Well, what it is, it's it's to disempower certain groups that could be a problem. Yeah. And and that is what they've been trying to do for a long time. But there is a very sinister undercurrent to all this, which I explored in an article, actually, on windowsontheworld.net on a homepage. It's called The Smart Cabal. I won't go into it, but for anyone who wants to understand the background of why there seems to be this hatred, this kind of destruction of what this certain group called Amalek, their eternal enemies, which is a biblical kind of story, um, but it's actually being applied. And the belief system behind that is a distortion of what the religion was in the first place. So there are extremists uh, within this. And that is, I think, where we see this effrontery and we go, how have they got the nerve to do that? The audacity of it. And we have to also remember how Israel was formed in 1948 and what the Balfour Declaration actually said, then what happened. So this is not a new thing, but the overall plan has been to take these countries into this greater Israel project. And there are a lot of allies for that around the world, which people probably don't realise. Yeah, around the world is right. It's coming up for 16 minutes to the top of the hour. Do check out Mark's website, windowsontheworld.net, and please do support him, right? Don't listen to great product, not product, great content. Don't do that. And then not support it. If you can support it, support it. Support Mark Windows. Um, I'm halfway through. And I'll listen to the rest of it tomorrow, but I'm fascinated by it. Um, the holy sin of false messiah. What, yes. what is false messianic belief? You're explaining it to a kid. It's fascinating, this. Great show. If I was explaining it to a little child, I'd say, some people have bad thoughts and want to do bad things, and they want to take control of people through subversive means or through taking control of people in a way that is very manipulative. And that's what happened in the 1600s with a character called Sabbatai Zevi, and later with Jacob Frank in the 1800s. And these two are the kind of summation of what they are is Sabbatean Frankism. And so basically there is an idea that this group were to become a very huge and popular group within Judaism. In fact, a lot of the Jews in the Middle East converted, and this happened a lot in Turkey. And these people became known as the Don May. By the way, I'm, I'm talking as an adult now, Richie, because yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the simplistic no, uh, analogies yeah, dis- yeah. obviously has to disappear quite quickly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that's what that show was about. And the actual title of it was from an Israeli historian called Gershon Sholem, who's written fantastically detailed work about the Sabbatean Frankists. And basically, it was a messianic cult. And it was about bringing a lot of chaos to the world so that the Mossiach, the Messiah, would return. And so it became more and more degenerate. And the show was actually about that. And I've been covering this for quite a few years, actually. There is 
a show called Clowns of Kabbalah because of, these people were actually Kabbalists as well. And Kabbalah came out of the Langdok in the 1200s. But we have to go back before that. But the, the, the actual idea is that it started with this group of people and then they, they wrote certain literary works, including the Zohar, the Sefer Yetzirah, the Book of Bahia. There's quite a few of these Kabbalistic writings. And the Sabbatean and Frankists were Kabbalists. And that then went into the 1800s through the Hasidim movement. And the Hasidim took on the Kabbalah. And Gershon Sholem was saying in this article, which is a very long article, that the Hasidim had now actually rejected this. But I believe that there are groups within this framework of a religion who are still using these principles. And if we look at what's happening, we have to come to that conclusion in some ways, because if we see what's happening and the disregard for human life and this kind of obsession, well, where does that really come from? Where does yeah. that come from? God, that's, that's the interesting point. It is, yeah, because um, Israelis would consider themselves God's chosen people. But yet God, as far as I understand God, and I've got a copy of the King James Bible right here, not because I'm a practicing Christian, Mark, but because a great friend of mine gave me a present of it. And I do enjoy flicking through it and reading passages from time to time. But God certainly wouldn't endorse what's going on in Gaza. So this is the point you're making. So here we have God's chosen people, although some Israelis might ring us up and say, hang on a second, I live in Tel Aviv. I'm completely opposed to what's happening in Gaza today. Well, this is the thing, Richie. This is the interesting point because a lot of people with it, you see, I find it very difficult to talk about a subject and say Judaism because that's not really what I'm talking about because people have different ideas as to what it is. Yeah. And this is the problem, the definition of that is different to different people. So the rabbis would say to you, well, this is all about Torah and Torah changes every day. So Torah of today will not be the Torah of tomorrow. Whereas some people will say, oh, the Torah is the books of the Old Testament. Well, it's not. It's the whole conglomeration of all Jewish literature to a lot of the rabbis. So when we look at this subject, we have to actually be specific as to what we're talking about. That is the issue, I think, yeah. and a very important one. But as far as the God's chosen people, that was actually misplacing what the quote actually meant, because all of God's children are God's chosen people. But it was a reference to saying, well, you're God's chosen people. It meant you're God's chosen people as well. But we have to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see the jealous and spiteful God Yahweh. Yeah. That's not the God of the New Testament. So we also, when I, I got into these different branches within this subject of Judaism, um, it's it started to fascinate me. So I found that there was an infiltration program going on because we're talking now about the Sabbatean Frankists, for instance, infiltrated both Islam and Christianity. Why, Mark? Um, what, 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 what was, if you could explain to us, what was the goal, stated or otherwise, of this movement, the Sabbatean Frankists? What did they want to achieve? They want a world which is basically run by them, but it's done in the respect of bringing back a Messiah. The Mossiach will return if enough chaos 
happens on the earth. And we must help that chaos happen. So all the chaos that we can manufacture will help to be bringing back the Messiah. And does he so, believe that, Mark? Yes. So, sorry, yes. Wow. yes, absolutely. That was a core belief. And that's why I like to use the real sources of the like Israeli authors such as Gershon Sholem, because he put some very useful paragraphs in, which are put into that show that you're referring to. And that's exactly what he was saying. He was saying that it was a kind of embarrassment. It was a degeneration. And it's, it had a terrible effect on the religion that's known as Judaism. So the thing is that if, if we talk to Jewish people that you, you may know and I may know, they will not know anything about this. No. It will be a complete mystery to them, you see. So when I started looking, this is why I like to go into the occult, I started looking at Kabbalah because it's been used for so many different things. It's been used as an infiltration program for the New Age, and it's being used in ways which are, are kind of, yes, it's like an infiltration program of everything. So they're joining it up with like yoga, they're joining right. it up with New Age thinking. None of it is actually got anything to do with these these other things. Can I get a so, clarification from you, my friend? So when hmm. you say infiltrate, right, I love this Kabbalah because Madonna was into this for, uh, well, for a time. Well, actually, she's into what you call pound shop Kabbalah. Right. This was the Kabbalah center. And what, what happened is through the new age and the popularity of this stuff, they've kind of marketed it. So the Kabbalah center in London, for example, they've got them all over the world. You pay an awful lot of money to hear people waffling at you. But if you go into the actual belief system of it, it's not what is being portrayed. Madonna's got this kind of gift shop mentality of it. They're not, they're not talking about the depth of what it actually is. And it came from the fevered minds of people in the Languedoc in the 12th century, people like um, Moses de Leon. And when they, the Zohar became this kind of very important book within certain sects of Judaism. And I wanted to know why. So I started to look at what was behind it. And it was a messianic cult because these people were self-proclaimed messiahs, by the way. And Sabbatai Zevi was kicked out of Poland. And in when he went to Turkey, modern day Turkey, as it is now, the, the sultan said, well, you can either convert to Islam or we'll execute you. So he converted to Islam. And this was at the height of his fame. So I was very, very interested as to how this could still be in effect today. And I've got an amazing researcher who sends me stuff related to how the, the children, the grandchildren, the great-great-grandchildren of Sabbatai Zevi and Jacob Frank became this almost infiltration movement of... They, a lot of them went to Ireland, actually, and they integrated, and some of them became Anglican priests as well. It's very interesting. So, so they still did what they were doing in the times of Sabbatai Zevi, because he was um, inwardly a Sabbatean, but outwardly he was a believer in Islam. So they were called the Don May, these people. And there was a lot of them around Salonika. I started to look at how it spread through the Middle East, because it started. the Middle East started to make a lot more sense. And then... I'm up to today where people are sending me a lot of information about how this movement went into Ireland and and how people were Sabbatean Frankists from this background of Frankism, but they were now Catholic priests, for example. And you said infiltrate everything. So 
So those who adhere to this, let's call it a cult, right? This idea that if you create enough chaos, that you will inspire the return of the King of Kings, right? Or the Messiah. Yes. So they're trying to get key people, sorry, they're, they're trying to get key positions, basically, in institutions of government, in institutions of religion around the world. That's basically what they, what they were up to. And they were able to do this in, in secrecy, Mark, because um, that's the sort of thing you would imagine somebody would notice at one, at one stage or another. Somebody might say, well, hang on a second, there's something going on here. Who are these people? And why are they, you know, popping up in, in, in different governments and in, in, in different institutions? Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it's a thing I've gotten into very recently, actually, Richie, because the, the shows I did on Kabbalah led into Frankism. And if you go to windowsontheworld.net, you will find, um, yes, there's clowns of Kabbalah on the front page, but that will link to lots of different articles. And what I'm trying to do is give people a potted history. They can go off and research more themselves. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm, I'm interested in is how control actually exerts itself and works and what is the purpose of it? What are the goals? And when I looked at this, I found that there is a subversive cult within this group. And that fascinated me. So, yes, I'm, I'm kind of at the point where I'm branching out from the stuff that I already knew and going into areas which are quite hidden and esoteric. That's why I did that show, Holy Sin of False Messiah. Yeah, it's really uh, interesting. And people, yeah. can, people can find it on your website. They'll find it on YouTube as well. It's on Spreaker. Sarah says, the, the Sabbatean Francus pretended to be Jews, but in reality, says Sarah, hates them and us, they're the cabal, the ones behind what's going on in the world. Look how the Israelis were forced to take the vaccine a few years ago. And that's a good point Sarah makes there. The citizens of Israel, well, they were properly screwed over by their own government, weren't they, around COVID. They had the, the green pass where they couldn't go to the gym or to the coffee shop unless they could prove they were jabbed. And they did have that horrible vaccine kind of forced on them. So that's an interesting point, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's two drivers. They, there's this very dark element that Sarah was referring to, and there's this corporate element. And they, they kind of worked one feeds the other in a way. So in other words, one's the driver of the corporate side, which is the takeover of the land, which is what happened in Libya, of course. I mean, those corporations were fighting over who was going to take over Libya before they'd even invaded. I mean, people kind of forget this side of it. So basically, it's about resources and monopolizing those resources. That's what sustainable development's all about. So in other words, people who are involved in a cult like the Sabbateans are very useful on that level to be able to take the plan forward. So they become parts of it in a way. That's what I was interested in is how, how this kind of fitted in. And when I looked at, for instance, how the Don May had been involved in the uprising and the Young Turks and Ataturk and what happened in Turkey and then what happened within the Saudi, Saudi Arabia with the Saudi royal family and the difference between Medina and Mecca. And I started to put it all together. And, and it's a strategic thing that's going on with that region. 
So we can look at the horror of it and go, how can they do that? But what's happening, I think, is that there's this fanatical movement of people who actually really do hate their enemy. They hate them, but they're being used on a higher level through this corporate governance system. That makes sense. It does make and sense. That makes sense why it's allowed, you see, Richie, because where is the condemnation of what's going no, on? No, there's none. No, people who, you know, I mean, we know better, of course, but I know people who are shocked and horrified that the Labour Party leadership isn't calling this out for what it is. And, you know, I, I, I'm like you. I, I, I take the humble approach. I don't like to act like I know more or that I know better. I, I just feel sorry for them. You know, they're expecting widespread condemnation of it. They're expecting, you know, threats. They're expecting sanctions on Israel and none of it comes. And you know what you just said there a minute ago? It, it now, and it kind of answers a question that I've been asking myself for 15 years. This whole question about the long game. I used to ask all of my guests over the years, Jim Mars, um, David Icke, yourself, I used to always say, I said this to you years ago, I used to try and put you on the spot, and I'd say, what's this long game, bollocks, I used to say. I don't understand why some bloke or some group, some society in the 19th century would be playing these games if it wasn't going to pay off for 200 years when they wouldn't be here. But now I begin to see why they would play those games. Yes, because if you think of it in a different way, you see, we, yeah. we don't think of it in terms of long term. Because we say, well, we're only going to be here for a few years. Yeah. And most people go, well, I might as well make the most of Enjoy it. Enjoy They switch off from this stuff. But when you get these intergenerational families uh, who have a long-term plan, and this is, why I think, where this idea, which is only an idea, in my opinion, of transhumanism, this is what led into all that. It's this idea of being eternal and being able to constantly influence what's happening in the world. It all comes from control and a complete misunderstanding of the nature of reality in actual fact, in my opinion. Here's some interesting questions. Um, Chris, w w would like your thoughts on how the absolute chaos and slaughter... Now, Chris only says World War II. Thanks, Chris, but I'm going to put World War I in. 20 million people died, at least, in the Great War, right? We know that millions and millions died in in the Second World War. We know that 20 million Russians died. I, I think I have that right. We know that millions of Jews died. We know that millions of other people died. And Chris is wondering, how does that fit into it, this whole story, the Sabbatean Frankenstein, Hitler, for example? Would Hitler... I'm not going to argue this because I this is not an area of research I'm very familiar with, but um, I suppose you could make you could ask the question: Was Hitler part of it in some way, or the people around? Well, I, th I don't think we can spread this too thinly. I think it was definitely a huge influence in Eastern Europe and the Middle East, as far as Greece, because a lot of these people, these Frankists were operating from Thessaloniki, and I believe they still are today, by the way, because I've been to Thessaloniki and I've seen the centre of it, and I had good reason to think that, yes, there was still that control there, as there is in Turkey. But I don't think we can apply it like a blanket term to say that these people had kind of influenced all these events. I don't think that's true at all, but I see that what's happening in the Middle East particularly relevant to that mindset. But... When we look at the the long-term issue, like the First and Second World War, well, most of this stuff 
we have to look at the real story behind the cover story. And to do that is actually quite difficult. But when we look at history as a long-term thing, not a short-term thing, we have to look at where it's going. And what's actually happened over the recent past is that the goals have accelerated, but in a different way. So in other words, World War One, and World War II were necessary at the particular time. We are beyond the point now where those sort of wars will be fought again. They won't be fought like that. And by the early 19th century, I think that that was the consensus around the world. Because when we had the revolution in Russia, a different thing happened. Of course, we had communism applied to lots of different countries. And these people who were behind communism, you could say, okay, well, what they did to the Russians, what the Bolsheviks actually did to the Russians is very similar to what's going on in Palestine in a way, because people outside can think, why are these people seemingly so full of retribution against their neighbors? And when we understand the extreme elements then that does start to make sense. But I don't think you can sort of put an overall kind of comparison with what we were talking about just a few no, minutes no, ago with that. the Frankist yeah. movement. I don't think that we have to see it in a, in a bigger picture, but it certainly had a massive impact in parts of Europe and the Middle East. And you said yourself earlier, and this won't just apply to Jewish men and women, it'll apply to everybody. I mean, most people won't have heard of the Sabbatean Frankis. I would have heard brief mentions over the years at David Icke events, but nothing too in-depth. I'm, I'm, I'm told that it's something he's talking about now, um, which, 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 is, which is interesting. You're talking about it now. You're researching it now. And the fact that these people would still be around, that they would still be attempting to control organisations from within, you know. Well, I think if we look at Freemasonry, Richie, we have to look at the influence of Freemasonry. And by the 1700s in England, of course, we had the Scottish Rite, which was completely Kabbalistic. So that's the crossover we're talking about. And the Sabbateans were Kabbalists. So when we see the symbolism and the Kabbalah and the hidden, which is basically what Freemasonry is about. It's about keeping people on a hamster wheel for the rest of their lives and under control, but being useful idiots for the cause. Well, when we look at how Freemasonry was infiltrated by, first we had Templar Freemasonry and the Kabbalists had massive influence through the Enlightenment and Age of Reason, it started to come in then. So you had people who were in the Theosophical Society of Britain really pushing this. And so the, so there were a lot of esotericists in, in Britain who were actually unwittingly following elements of Frankism, you see. And so we can, we can look at this influence as being something quite broad, or we can say, well, wait a minute, What's it actually being used for now? And I think that's what we should keep it to because the actual, the elements of Freemasonry, like Rose Cross Freemasonry, the Order of the Rose Cross, that goes into lots of different areas as well. But without Kabbalah, the Rosicrucians would never have happened. So we have to look at the influence on Britain and how Britain was changed through this as well. So if the Frankists were Kabbalists, then Britain is hugely influenced by that. 
And how would we see that influence? Break it down into a couple of simplistics for me. Are we talking about the foreign policy of the country? Are we talking about the country's approach to migration? Are we talking about political agendas, basically? Well, I think we're talking about the way people are controlled, first and foremost, because the means of control. Is a control mechanism. Right. But I think that if we look at it now, we can actually see it in sustainable development, because if we think of this as something that's masquerading as something it's not. Something good, well, but it isn't. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what the environment cult is all about, isn't it? Yeah. So it's the same thing again, like the Rosicrucians were saying, that we are an enigma wrapped in a mystery. That just keeps people interested because people love a mystery. But in actual fact, the plans that are behind this stuff are no mystery at all. They keep people hooked on the mystery. So I think that came in through Kabbalah because that was a, a very important way of getting people to want to be distracted in a way because the the whole point of it was that when i looked into the early kabbalists and what they'd written i mean it would really bore you if you read through a lot of this stuff a lot of them were obsessed with ezekiel and viewing the divine household and then you had of course the sephiroth the tree of life and the gematria which is the decoding of words through numbers and these people drove themselves insane trying to decode everything. So there's almost a comedic side to it all. <laughs> but you see what I mean? So yeah, yeah, in actual yeah. fact, I thought, I can imagine these guys sat in a cave for years on end, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and they're just, all is they're doing is kind of driving themselves insane. And their brains are just becoming completely overheated with what is in effect complete nonsense. And it doesn't even add up when you look at the language that they're using. And there was a character in England called McGregor Mathers. And he wrote a book called The Kabbalah Unveiled. And he, he was actually using completely wrong ciphers and using the words and the letters and, and the numbers in, in a completely irrelevant way. So there's a huge comedic aspect of it. It was almost like a, a cult that just didn't stop. And I think that's why the New Age absorbed it, you know, but it's absorbed into lots of different things. And, and you can say that, okay, well, that sort of thinking is still around today. It's there within the Gaia cult. It's there within what's happening within, yes, your local council, because they never give you a straight answer. It's all about obfuscation and hiding the, the real behind the false. It sounds, listening to you talk about these groups, these Kabbalists and these Freemasons and Frankists, that shifting paradigms was obviously central to what they have done through the generations. A culture, make, enacting or bringing about kind of cultural shifts, shifts in thinking, you know, move mass movement, sorry, moving people in great numbers, shifting their thinking in a certain direction. And I suppose from, from listening to you and listening to half the podcast, I suppose control of the media is hugely important here in terms of changing the way people perceive what they are, where they are and what's really going on, right? Yeah, well, the whole social engineering thing is actually yeah. how it's been used. I mean, we have to remember that Britain really was the whole centre of social engineering. I mean, when we go back to that show I did a few weeks ago, The Fourth World, 
the fourth world wilderness. These concepts are very abstract for most people to understand, but we're actually in that at the moment, the fourth world, beyond the first, second and third world. And people are in this wilderness of the mind. They don't know what to do. Their view on reality has been completely messed up and they're getting all this misinformation and there's no clarity. And my point within it all was that how do you make this stuff simple and clear and to the point? And it's actually quite difficult. Yeah, it's not easy. That is, yeah. that is the main goal here because what we're looking at is control systems. So it, it fits in perfectly when you think about it because we are talking about something quite esoteric. So the elitists will say it's the blending of the fire and the water. Sustainable development, the environment cult, is the blending of fire and water, which is the old Rosicrucian kind of alchemy. In other words, that the banks, the corporations are the fire which bring this in. And the environmentalists are the water who are steered by the corporations. So the water is just steered, you see. And a judge, when he was addressing one of these so-called climate protesters, Actorvists, um, an Extinction Rebellion type uh, theatre event, he said, you need to be more like water, you see. So there's an occult side to all this that these people know about. And that is from the deceptions that they've learned through Freemasonry, this Kabbalah, this kind of way of obfuscating things and presenting them. For instance, in 1987, when this fellow called George Hunt, who made the video, which was called Unsaid, U-N-C-E-D, the elite plan well ahead. Everyone should watch that because if you watch that, a lot of what's happening will make sense. And I did a show on it called The Fourth World. You can find it on YouTube, but I prefer to watch it on Odyssey, obviously. Um, but the point is that they couch the terms that they use in, in ways which hide their reality from the public. So sustainable development, for instance, is control and management, but mainly reduction of population. It's control of resources, management of everything, reduction of population. But when they're speaking at their own conferences, and you can hear that in that actual show, and I play it on my show, is an investment banker called David Lang in 1987 said, we need to bring this down to some kind of simple phrase for the cannon fodder that unfortunately inhabit the earth. And they referred to the third world countries as Lilliputians who were inferior to the Anglo-Saxon system, you see. So what we're, what we're talking about here, David Langle said, we, we need to instigate an elitist program which presents itself in a simple way for the cannon fodder. And that is their thought process. So once we understand that, then we understand that this is a management system. So most things are a management system. So the Kabbalah was introduced in a way, and then it became a management system. So then it takes the mystery away because there has to be an outcome to all this stuff. I mean, the whole idea is that you think of these people in the Langdok, that they spent years writing this kind of, a lot of it's just verbal diarrhea really, but it's accepted within this broader church of thought by quite a lot of people. But when we look at management concepts and the way things are actually used, they're using elements of occult thinking in a very practical way. To bring about a change in people where people will believe that they themselves present a danger to the existence or the future of the planet and that they therefore must be prepared to make 
the ultimate sacrifice in some cases. We've already seen teenagers. I don't know if you know this, but a pair, a pair of teenagers committed suicide in Russia last week. I haven't even mentioned it on this programme because I had a couple of days off. And um, their reasoning for it was because of the state of the planet, Mark. Young kids. Yes, well, this is, you see, the whole point that if they can get the population to willingly genocide themselves, then they don't have to do it. That's the whole point of sustainable development. That's the whole point of promoting this idiocy of these climate groups, which there are thousands of. I mean, the whole point is that they want, first of all, they want a global population of one billion. Two to three billion would be acceptable living at a very low standard, but they want the global billion. Now, how are you going to achieve that? Well, we can't have it through wars anymore because it was already decided that wars would no longer allow territorial gain, which is why everything's owned by corporations now, which is why countries are carved up by corporations as soon as there's been a conflict. So in other words, there's no national sovereignty. Now, what they want is people to be as dumbed down as possible, to believe that to save the earth, they have to give up everything including their own minds, their future, and ultimately their lives. And breeding, and, and not having children, which is a constant... Exactly. I'm hearing more and more of this, constantly hearing it coming up on mainstream programmes. You know, I'm, I'm hearing kids saying that they wouldn't dream of having a child and, you know, it would be the wrong thing to do. It's incredibly successful. I, I think I, personally, I wouldn't speak for anybody else, but I think I underestimated the cabal. Let's call them the cabal, Right. But I, you know, I bought into this thing that well, they're not very clever. That they're good at destroying things, but but they're not very clever. I think they're far more clever, maybe, than I've ever given them credit for. There's a few brilliant comments have come in. I want to read them, but I also want to ask you, right? So you listen to, I mean, you 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 listen to a lot. You 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 hear a lot. You read a lot. So what we know today as conservatives, they will blather on about cultural Marxism, right? Um, I don't think they have a clue as to what it is they're exactly talking about, but they will mention Marxism. So when you talk about Sabatean Frankism, we talk about Kabbalah, where does Marx, Marxist thinking fit in with the conditioning of people to accept, you know, sustainable development, to, to, to basically accept their own demise, where does Marxism well, it, actually, the whole sustainable development program is run through the principles of Marxism. That is the whole communitarian system. So, in other words, they don't call it communism anymore. And nobody knows the term communitarianism. And that's how it's run. So it's the same principles and the same goals. Now, the thing is, if we go back to the 1917 revolution, they can't do that again. They can't just walk in with some ideologues and and start murdering people. Okay, we can say that, that that's what's happening in Palestine, but that that's kind of gatekeeped in a different way. Yeah. But as far as going f forward with these wars, then there's a much easier way of doing it. And that's what they decided by 1992. And when we look at documents such as Our Common Future, which came out in 87, it was saying there would be this unstructured new governance system and countries would have to accept loss of sovereignty. This is part of it. So that has all been thought about. 
I don't think it's hey Mark, that can I endorse level. you? Can I endorse yeah. what you just said there? It's very important. Mm. I don't have the clip to hand. It's on another laptop. But about five years ago, Richard Haas gave a speech in Europe. He, you know who he is. He's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is, yes. a, which is supposed to be a think tank, which is non-partisan. It's a load of bollocks. It's very serious. Yes. These guys drive everything that Mark Windows has been researching for years. The Council on Foreign Relations is a roundtable group. It's a very important facet of, of, of this agenda. He, he gave a speech five years ago. He's promoting a book. And he, to endorse what you just said there, I wish to God I had the clip. He said that, um, he basically said, we're entering World Order 2.0. And he said, sovereignty was a lovely concept 100 years ago. He said, it's not really acceptable anymore because we can't allow... Um, countries. We can't allow people operate within countries and do things which are harmful to the greater good, like the environment or whatever, without taking some um, measures against them. And he left it wide open, you know, not just sanctions, not just economic sanctions, but also, you know, if necessary, to go in there. So that's to endorse what you said there, because that's very important. And he was saying this in 2017, I think, at some yes, speech he it's, gave. it's yeah. an infiltration programme, Richard. Yeah. I don't think people understand how much they've been infiltrated. It's something that I've been talking about, I know, a long time. But unless people understand that, that this system has infiltrated everything global to local. And we're talking about the solutions locally. Now, when you hear what these people are saying, yes, exactly, it makes sense. I mentioned a carbon trading document from 2008, which basically said, this new carbon trading system uh, was put forward by NM Rothschild in London. They were the first to get into it and they produced a paper and you can download it in an article called The Man Who Saw the Future, which is on the homepage at windowsontheworld.net. Just put it into the search bar and you can download that carbon emissions trading. It's very interesting because he said the same thing. Countries will have to accept a loss of sovereignty and what better place to run this carbon trading system than a leading city in a leading country such as Great Britain and the city of London. So the city of London is running sustainable development, which is why the UK is being forced into net zero, because the UK is being made the example of. That's why it's moving so fast there. And I'm trying to warn people that they can still take back control and warn them about the infiltration because the NGOs who are running your local councils are these globalist organizations. You don't have to talk about these big steering groups like the Council on Foreign Relations. No, it's you're right. In you're right. Your local council. It's yeah. good that you brought it up, Richie, but what I'm no, saying is. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. These yeah. NGOs, I've been horrified by the way that these councils are now run because we're talking global to local. So we've talked a bit globally. Locally is where it's being imposed. It's being imposed on your front door. Just look at you, Les, in London. Just look exactly. At, just look at the example of it in Glasgow. I, I did a story on the podcast earlier, Mark, about Glasgow, where it's worse than Absolutely. London. Yeah. Scotland has been destroyed by this. We have a Discord group, and we have people in Scotland, and they post what's happening there. They are being absolutely restricted and brought down. And of course, the whole point is that it's going to be Britain that becomes sustainable before anywhere else. 
My so they are in a rush to do it. In a rush to do it. My great pal, I often mention her, uh, Jean Ann Crowley, who's a supporter of Windows on the World.net, by the way, oh, is great. Jean Ann. Um, say hello to Jean Ann, Mark. Hello, Jean Ann. Thanks for supporting the most marginalised show. <laughs> Yeah, on thanks. <laughs> Absolutely right. It has been. You've, you've had some it shit has over been the years. Richie, yeah. It's unbelievable. No, I'm going to give you that. Find me anymore. <laughs> I'm going to give you that. You've been kicked out. Of, been kicked out of every um, um, uh, internet search engine in the world. I know that, pal. I'm well aware of it. But well, yeah, even I think as far as we talked about this, the the fake alternative media, which is these grifters who've appeared, we talked about in the last show. I won't go yeah, into it. Yeah. But they dutifully leave out anything of any importance, and it's very frustrating because. We are putting out the solutions. We're telling you how to do it after studying this. And people can't say it's my opinion because I'm telling them how the system works. I say, no, it's nothing to do with me. And we've got so much information there. So it is frustrating that at this very key point in history, we are being absolutely wiped out from the airwaves. Wiped out, man. Yeah, but you'll always have um, a home here, pal. That's you know, great. You know that. Uh, if, yeah. if the worst comes to the worst, we'll, we'll find a way of keeping you on the air. Mark Windows is our guest. Please go to windowsontheworld.net. Do support Mark um, if you can and share his work with others. Um, always interesting, brilliantly researched. No, I just wanted to mention, Jean Ann made a very good point. Our current Taoiseach, whose name is Leo Varadkar, oh, yeah. it seems these days it's all the rage to have um, an Indian Prime Minister or Taoiseach. He says, I'm going to be called a gammon now for saying that. But um, he said something very interesting. And then I want to say something else before you come back in, uh, jump in any time, of course. But he said, um, did Varadkar, is that national sovereignty was a backward looking concept, Mark? These people have been trained. They are, they are what they call useful idiots. I use that term a lot, but it's because there's so many of them around. And a useful idiot is someone who fronts something that has a really bad and sinister agenda behind it, which, of course, is him. Now, the point is, these people are chosen. They're, they're repeating this stuff. They probably don't even understand it. And this is the point that we're talking about the restriction of language. We're talking about a kind of magic, really. It's almost like magic, yeah. a, a way of manipulating people through this very simplistic language only. So in other words, once you restrict the vocabulary of how these people talk and what they say, then you have the whole agenda and you don't discuss anything outside of it. So you have this narrow corridor of accepted opinion, which is getting narrower, as we know. And then it comes down to simplistic terms, which is what they talked about. So when they're t using these word salads like sustainable, diversity, inclusivity, people don't know what they mean. No, that's a very good point. It's hard to unpick something or, or even to pick holes in it if it's as, as you said, if it's word salad, if it's it's basically impossible to, to well, kind of pull yes, it apart. I mean, people don't understand the, the real yeah. unstated goals. So inclusivity means divide and rule, of it course. It does, of course it does. Sustainability mean yeah. is basically reduction of population and control of all resources by a few corporations. And if we look at that on a local level, these council people in your local town hall are getting paid £110,000 a year. And these councils are going bankrupt. They're nearly all bankrupt now. Yeah, it's Birmingham. incredible, isn't it? Mad. And of course, they're all on board with these NGOs like ICLE, Local Government for Sustainability. That's the International Council of Local Environmental Initiatives. And, and these drive policy in your local area. 
Sigoma, I've just got a list of some of them here, one of the largest interest groups within the uh, local government authority, local government association. And they're the ones who are actually the interface from, from government to local government to your council. And this is a special interest group of municipal authorities representing 47 urban authorities in the North Midlands and South Coast regions of England. And then you've got this LATCO model, which is um, local authority trading companies with a need to balance the books and continue to deliver social value for local residents. Many councils are exploring how they can engage in commercial activity to increase jobs. Now, what they're doing is they're bringing in these corporate partners and these corporate partners are your government. And now they're devolving government. We have these unitary councils, but when they're devolved um, in March next year, you will not have a say in anything. And that's the issue. So you're going to have all of these local initiatives, which you don't want, enforced on you, as we've been talking about for years. And there is a way around it. You have to get involved locally and call local referendums. We've got all the information in a couple of shows, actually, Richard. Yeah, you changed well my mind. Now. You changed my mind. Before you mentioned the shows, which mm. which you should do, yeah, you did change my mind. Um, because I had previously not been able to separate the national from the local. So I was yes. mired. I was mired in this trying to tell people. I still do. I still think it's important that your political parties are ultimately controlled by the same source. So you're never going to get changed by getting rid of the Tories and getting Labour in, which is true, but I got so wrapped up in that that I dismissed the idea that you could get involved locally, which you've demonstrated can happen, and that you can put a huge wrench in the works of, of, of these agendas. So yeah, look, I'm, I'm on board with that. Where, where, remind us of the name of those episodes and those articles. Yeah, I put one up today on the Discord, and it's called uh, Community, in inverted commas, of course, because the community is them, not you. Community Taking Back Control. And it's the second part of a show that I did, which followed up another show called The Community Revolutionaries. So they're both on Odyssey. I might be able to get away with putting them on YouTube, actually. But The Community Revolutionaries is how these groups impose themselves locally and how you can stop them because the narrative of public opinion has been taken over. And I think it's good we've got onto this point from what we were talking about earlier. So we're going from this sort of global perspective and we're talking about Sabatier and Frankism and these infiltration groups. This is the same sort of infiltration, but it's cleverer and it's corporate and it's actually much more insidious because it's not done on the back of an organised religion, it's done on the back of the new religion the new of Gaia, religion. which everybody must adhere to. This is really, really important. And because it's at local level, there's no coverage of it. Nobody gives a damn. You're not going to read about it in The Guardian or The Telegraph. You're not even going to read about it in the Manchester Evening News. It's just happening. And unless you're alive, unless you're, you know, open to it, unless you're actually paying attention. And I have to say, mate, if, if, if without people like you... That stuff would have never, I would have never brushed up against that, really. You know, I would have spent most of my time focusing on the national and trying to explain to people, you know, to disengage from that. So, so it is hugely important. I mean, does, when we look back, did we, did we see the seeds of this when, when Thatcher gave people the right to buy all of these initiatives? Was this all part of that so that they could privatise? Yeah, it's been a slow and steady creep, but it yeah. kind of got a lot faster 
uh, with Blair. Yeah. And then we started to see people being trained. You see these change agents, these people who have been put in to bring about change. Now they're all there. So in other words, there's nobody there that really isn't one of these people. And it's the infiltration of it all is complete. Meanwhile, the public are still going, oh, it's the Tories, oh, it's Labour. It has nothing to do with any of that, obviously. Now, the thing is that this level of infiltration was something that I'd looked at from 2010. And I think this, it actually started happening before that, as I said, with the um, new new Labour. But, but by 2010, we had David Cameron's Big Society. I mentioned this a lot because it was a defining point when they started training people as community organisers and started to take control of the narrative locally. And when I saw what happened in my local borough, Waltham Forest, hundreds of these people came in to take over the narrative of all local public opinion. And, running and that local doesn't services. mean the, the, the people wanted it. Yeah. It means that they took it over and they started using the Saul Alinsky rules for radicals. There's 13 of them, look it up. If you don't know who Saul Alinsky is, he was a radical activist who used very extreme methods, often quite successful for so-called empowering communities. And what this is all about is audacity. For instance, they say things like, you target people, you pick the target, you freeze it, you personalize it and polarize it, which means that if you see one person standing up at a council meeting, there'll be 10 dragons attacking them. And it doesn't matter whether it's a protest group like uh, Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter, or any of the other activist groups, or your local council meeting, they're all run using Delphi technique. They all use people called dragons who are there to shut down any dissent. And they're using this Saul Alinsky thing in, in a very corporate way. And that's what I saw happening in 2010. Now, what you could say, you could compare the Saul Alinsky rules to, to what the Frankists were doing, in a way, because it's just as radical and it's just as sinister. Because when I found out the lengths that these people would go to and became a victim of it, I just couldn't believe the audacity. But more than that, I couldn't believe that they were allowed to act above the law and with the support of the police, were they with even, the support of the council. I, 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 I remember when we talked about this at length at mm. the time what happened to you. Was there an evangelical fervour to these dragons? Meaning, now you might get, you might roll your eyes, you might sigh, you might be exasperated by what I'm about to say, but I'm fascinated by this. Are they themselves hooked into it, like these dragons? They must have been convinced of it, right? Otherwise they wouldn't behave in that way. I mean, that would be even more sinister. This is the point when I see these Extinction Rebellion people and others. I'm convinced that to their mitochondria, they believe this stuff. Did you, did you feel that when you were coming up against these people, that they were really, I don't know, almost like religious maniacs? Well, that's an interesting question, Richie, because in the case of Extinction Rebellion, they gatecrashed one of my talks in the UK. And this fella came and he wasn't very convincing, but he came in and he said, you're lying. And I said, well, that's the UN Charter of 1947. So how can that be a lie? And they started arguing and he made the most banal comments. He said something like, while you're wasting people's time, Half the, half the Southern Hemisphere is underwater. And I said, well, no, it's two-thirds the same as normal. 
<laughs> and they didn't have anything to say. And I said, look, if you want to arrange a debate, we can film it. You can film it. But don't edit it badly. We'll have it unedited. I said, you film it. I'll come in and present my evidence and just listen to it. Yeah. But they never no, contacted they me. No. Because I don't think they actually do mean it. But the activist groups are all theatre, in my opinion, because they have such limited knowledge of what they're actually doing. But the people controlling the activist groups are the agents of change. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, we look at who was controlling Extinction Rebellion. It was people who had been involved in the infiltration of Occupy with the Soros money, the climate change agenda, getting people like Brian Hoare and Barbara Tucker, many people may not know who they are. They were peace activists against the Iraq war. And the result of that was a thing called climate camp action, which was run by undercover police and MI5, which took Brian Hoare and Barbara Tucker off there through a thing called Democracy Village. Now, when we find out where Extinction Rebellion came from, it came from Democracy Village and Climate Camp Action. So we know that the intelligence services and the undercover police are a big part of Extinction Rebellion. And the managing director of Compassionate Revolution was one of the MI5 people who was involved in getting rid of those activists. And they also, through Climate Camp Action, took all Occupy's finances all the donations to Occupy were stolen through this undercover police group. So when we look at activism, we have to see what people like Gail Bradbrook said. She said, there are people in government who need groups like us to give them the social permission yeah. to do the necessary. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. The, the existence of Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion becomes the justification for policy. At, um, Absolutely, local they're level, just pushing yeah. policy, but yeah. they don't know what policy they're pushing. So what they're being told is provably nonsense, but they don't want to hear that. No, I agree with this now, but, but when I say but, look, I have seen some of them on TV and, I mean, if they're acting, some of them, they're brilliant and they should be... I'm not saying they're acting, Richie. Yeah. I, I'm saying that their arguments are fallacious. Yeah, no doubt. They may be very enthusiastic and they may be very passionate about what they're saying, but they have no basis for what they're saying. No, of course most not. most of what they say. Yes, exactly. That's the point. Yeah, of course so not. Yeah, but they look like they're going to have a breakdown sometimes, Mark. I mean, they yes, look they on do. the verge they of it. Yeah. Because they, but I think a lot of it is kind of neurosis. I don't think it comes from their internal power. I don't think it comes from their real belief system. It comes from a kind of social anxiety that's been given to them. Yeah, it's been put into them. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That, that may, yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen them. I'm breaking down. There's an Irish guy who's written for The Independent. You know the guy, Dunica, Dunica McCarthy, I think it is. I think it's Dunica. He's a fucking madman, Mark. Mm. I mean, to, to me, he, he's properly swallowed this stuff, you know. He, he's on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Um, I, I think, thinking that if, if we don't change course, like you said, we're all going to be underwater 
in 20 years time which 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 we're not obviously we're not i mean yeah. one of the things i did over the years was educated myself about um climate shifts and climate patterns on earth as scientists and geologists have told us about over the last 100 years and all the ice core work and everything the planet is in no danger we can't change um the climate on on, on this planet i'm convinced of that not because i you know, because it's what I believe and and I'm stubborn. No, I've looked into it. I've interviewed them all. Plymer, I've had them all on. I gave Plymer a bloody good chasing on this program. And um, he had all the answers, you know, yes. which I knew he would. It's bullshit. And yet, and you said to me years ago, this was going to be the thing. Climate was going to be the thing. All these other yeah, things. They decided they, on it. Yeah, climate is the way forward. The greatest enemy of mankind is mankind itself. Yeah. We're a parasite and... We, we we need to do the, the the decent thing. What 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 about that guy that was featured in the New York Times? I couldn't believe him. Um, I was listening to Joe Rogan. Now you'll probably roll your eyes, um, but but um, he's he's had some interesting guests on, and he lets them speak. And again, I like listening to him when when I've not got a Windows on the World episode to tune into on my run. I'll um, listen <laughs> to a little bit of Rogan. No, seriously, I listen to a bit of Rogan, and they he he talked about a guy who's a madman. But he was treated by the New York Times as if he's a, a genius. This guy who's um, part of a end, basically he's part of a human extinction movement. I can't think of the guy's name. They don't want to kill people. They don't want to execute people. But they want to convince people that it's basically time to stop breeding. That enough's enough now. That the planet needs, <laughs> the planet needs a period without human beings on it. And they're celebrating this guy in the New York Times like this is a good idea. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is the whole point of the indoctrination. Yeah. And this was discussed in the fourth world because George Hunt, this fellow who went to this UNSAID conference, United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, run by Maurice Strong and Edmund Rothschild. And under Rothschild got up and he just put these most ridiculous points over. And he knows that he was kind of joking, I think. Because he was saying we could maybe cool the poles down by putting some dry ice machines up there, you know. I mean, it, and, it, and nobody laughed. But I think the people there knew that he was pointing out the absurdity of it to those in the know. But this is the whole point. And this indoctrination level, it's everywhere, Richie. It's in every country. Yeah. And, and it's much more prevalent than people think. So in a way... They are quite advanced with this because in the next generation or two, people will have stopped breeding. They'll have got most people under control if this goes to plan. But of course, they're running out of time because they can't keep this climate emergency going and the climate crisis when there isn't one. No, I'm going to make you laugh, right? And then, <laughs> and then I think one of the things that's got, gotten you through over the years is you and I share... A sense of humour. Oh, at, yeah. at times you have to laugh at it. This made me laugh as much as anything last year. I didn't play this for you previously, I don't think, but um, it's only like, um, what is it, nine seconds? It's about, no, 15 seconds. Um, I reserve a lot of anger, but when I say anger, I don't really mean vicious anger, but for our fellow man and woman, you know, our neighbours, the people who just don't want to see it or, or they can't see it, God love them. But this made me laugh about the climate. So we remember Chris Whitty and Valance and those idiots, useful idiots as you call them, giving the COVID briefings. This was a woman on LBC Radio, and every time I hear this, listen to this, Mark, listen. I do feel that 
every week on the television there should be the Prime Minister flanked by two climate scientists explaining what has been done to mitigate climate change. Mm. And that's not happening. Every week, every week, Mark, we should have the Prime Minister... Well, they do in a way, don't they? Because they all have these (laughs) absurd commentators and kind of programs. I think Sky News had one, didn't it? On the climate crisis. It's it's incredible. But the, the thing is that it's so embedded now. This is my point, you see. With infiltration, once it's taken hold, it's really hard to get rid of because you have to reject it from the outset. And the problem people have got now is that Every council is saying there's a climate emergency. And all these people are on fortunes because they have these corporate partners who are filtering down all your local policy. So everything being done is being done on the back of this gigantic lie, which is to your detriment. And that is, I think, the most sinister part of it for me in that it's almost like the hg wells film where you've got the loi and someone's they're all sat around in a group and one of them's drowning and none of them will even notice yeah or get up and do anything and that's what it feels like it feels like you can see what's happening but they're all blind to it and then they're all going oh well we'll go back to what we believe in even when you've told them that this will work, and you've showed them. I mean, I'm not telling people anything. I'm just showing them. And we put out information, and then they will still go back to their default point and not take it in. And I think that is, if anything, what I find the most horrendous part about it. It's not that they're doing it. It's people don't see what they're doing. Yeah, I get that. I get it. And um, listen, be, 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 before we, we say goodbye today, I could have went into, there's some very interesting questions about about rituals like taking the knee and Black Lives Matter. There's some interesting comments about geoengineering. But uh, I don't know if we're going to get to do this before Christmas. I mean, we can do if it suits you in December. If you've got an evening, we can do it. We can get into some of the other comments. But um, anytime, uh, Richie. Yeah, I love having you on, pal. You know that. Um, Mark, it can be can be go to Windows on the World Net for the information. By the way, for those of you who are wondering why I didn't do what I do and jump all over Mark when he talked about infiltration and and intelligence agencies at Occupy, it's because it's all in the public domain. It's yeah, well, we made films about it. I mean, that's right. It's I've, in the public domain. I've proved it. It's all empirical fact. I yeah. mean, I put this stuff out. You can look at an article called "Covid Protest Social Engineers" and another one called "Agents of Revolution," and then you can look at Extinction Rebellion: The Facts, and, these and you will see it. It's all we've got their internal documents. Who is getting paid? How much? And that's and those people are still leading you. They're still doing nowhere. It. Yeah, and that's the point. That's the, that's the point. I mean, when, when I said in the public domain. You'll find this stuff at Windows on the world, uh, .net. Um, you're still in Bulgaria at the moment or are you elsewhere? I am, Richie, yeah. Fantastic, mate. Obviously, when you mentioned earlier on, it's getting a bit cold now. I thought, uh, yeah, it'll be cold there. No, it's, a, it's an interesting one because my, my, my missus has been looking looking at Bulgaria as a, as a possible place to visit for, I don't know, we've two, you know, youngish dogs. I don't know if we're going to get to, to travel to Bulgaria for a holiday, but um, yeah, it looks it looks to be 
you know, it looks to be someplace more Well, physically. if you want to come over, Richard, just let me know. There's plenty oh. of room here, and it's a, it's a wonderful place because you can get around, you can drive anywhere you want, and you can have a car that's 30 or 40 years old and nobody minds. And they're, and they're not charging you 60, <laughs> 60 quid a day to drive it into, into stuff right. for you. Yeah. I know it's a great... But, you know, just before we do go, it is, it is um, a couple of people I know, and I think you know them as well, we can't name them, but... Um, they're involved and of course officially not to be a dickhead about it no I don't mean officially look none of us are going to encourage anybody else to break the law we're not going to do that but we understand that people are taking action and um, one or two people that we've met over the years one or two of the more trustworthy ones are doing some stuff around the cameras and stuff and um, so yeah there, there, there is there is and th- so, so that's a reason I think to be optimistic there are people who are not going to take it. Look, I'm interested up here because the signs have appeared in Salford. You know the signs? That yes. this this area is being considered for a, you know, clean air zone, which which means obviously ULES. So um it's it's happening in, in, in this city as well. But no asking not to be nosy, just um because you have a lot of um support obviously uh, here on this show and obviously in the UK from people who've gone to see you over the years at your various talks. So they like to know that you're well and that you're doing well. But I do say again, folks, if you do um, spend time with Mark on his programmes, if you watch them, if you can support him, we know times are tight, do support him because it's great work and um, he's in nobody's pocket. He's completely independent. So you got to support Absolutely. him. Absolutely. So there you are, pal. Come back any time. I'll be in touch then in early December. And thanks so much again for today. Great to have you back. Thanks, Richie. Enjoyed that. Cheers, buddy. So did I. Bye for now. Uh, our friend Mark Windows, live from Bulgaria. Uh, WindowsOnTheWorld.net. Check him out if you haven't before. I know you have. And the, uh, the, the Windows on the World programs are excellent. He's always got something interesting going on and interesting people for you to hear as well. Mark Windows on Thursday's Richie Allen Show. I was going to take a tune. Will I take a tune? I'll take a quick tune and then I'll come back and tell you what I want to tell you because I've got a little bit of news about this program. Here's Gabrielle Silmi then. Come on, Gabrielle. Gabrielle, still me and sweet about me on the Richie Allen Show. It's uh, fast approaching 10 minutes to the top of the hour. Listen, I want to correct myself, by the way. Uh, it was Hall Martin, the Irish Taoiseach, who said that national sovereignty is a, is a backward concept or outdated. Hall Martin, the predecessor... Of course, they've got that unholy alliance, don't they, in Ireland? Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil. The unholy alliance. What a load of bollocks that is. I mean, Jesus. Indeed. Yeah, not to put too fine a point on it. What a load of bollocks. Uh, thanks, Erkan. Erkan really enjoyed listening to Mark. He presents his nuanced information in a sobering manner. Clear, concise, incredible. Thank you, Erkan. I think it's the first time I've seen you on the chat. I appreciate all your comments today. Just a couple of little bits of housekeeping. Uh, there will be a newspaper podcast tomorrow. Like I said, it's Monday to Friday. So if that's your thing, I like the newspaper podcast. It's uh, nice to be doing something a bit new. And it's also nice to be giving something a bit more. He said, I'm, I'm a grafter, me. I'm not looking for any compliments here. No, I'm not. But I'm a grafter, you know. These are difficult times for everybody. And obviously, everybody has seen a little drop-off because in terms of support, little drop-off because people are struggling, and I totally get that. So now's the time, rather than sulk about that, give a little bit more. That's what I do. (laughs) Give a little bit more. So the podcast, the Papers podcast, I'm enjoying it. It'll be online tomorrow morning. I say 9 o'clock, but it might be earlier. 
than that, right? But around about nine o'clock in the morning. Obviously, I had a couple of days off, so there was no Sunday morning melodies last Sunday. Although, hilariously, about 150 comments came in with requests. Uh, that's because I put a repeat show on. Uh, Sunday Morning Melodies does return. It's back this Sunday morning, this coming Sunday, the 19th, is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm back on with Sunday Morning Melodies this coming Sunday. Now, here's the news. So straighten up. I have a bit of news for you. Back in 2014, when this radio program began, it aired between 8 and 10 for about 18 months, just under two years. And then I moved it from 7 to 9 where it remained for about three years. And for the best part of the last four and a half years, five years, the programme has aired between 5 and 7pm. And that's how it's been. It's time for a change. Don't panic. It's not a massive change. And it's very little of a change, really. I'm going to begin from this coming Monday, the 20th. I think it's the 20th. The Richie Allen Show will air for two hours, as usual, Monday to Friday. But it'll be a four o'clock kickoff. And it'll finish at six o'clock. Why? Because I have a family. It's a tiny little family. But I need to spend a bit more time with them. Uh, because I'm a one-man band, when I finish the radio show, by the time I get the podcast done, by the time I finish replying to emails and speaking to people, it's often way gone eight o'clock, half eight, before I'm um, ready to sit down with my tiny little family. And from from then on in it's only an hour before I'm going to bed because I'm a 4.30am riser so it's time for a change five years uh, five to seven we're now going to four to six don't read anything into that other than I've just told you the reason okay um, because I know some of you panic last time I changed a few years ago people thought I was losing interest no um, excuse my language fuck no I'm not losing interest I just need a little bit more time in the evenings you know, if we want to take a walk, um, I know in this weather you might think, Jesus, why would you want to go for a walk? If we want to go um, for a pizza around the corner, it's me, me missus, our two dogs. That's what it is. So four to six. Um, it won't really affect the production of the programme because most days I'm ready to go by four anyway and I'm twiddling my thumbs between four and five. Most days, some days I frantically, you know, I'm 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 chasing my tail and I'm frantically scrambling for a guest or something. But in general, I'm ready by four, so I'm going to do four to six, and that'll be, I suppose, forevermore now, right? It'll never be any earlier. It can't be because we have a sizable listenership in the US, particularly on the West Coast. So it's never going to be any earlier than that. But it's going to make a big deal in my life, okay? And I hope you'll appreciate that because I put a lot of I put a lot of time into this program and a lot of effort into it. And it'll make it even better for me. I'll enjoy it even more that I'll have something to look forward to in the evenings, the occasional football match and what have you. But uh, mostly the, the, the time I'll spend with my better half. Okay, do you understand that? I will, of course, put a post on the website. I will even make a podcast about it over the weekend just to get people um, up to speed because some people won't know. Four o'clock UK time from now on till six, two hours, Monday to Thursday, that's the Richie Allen Show. Right. Thank you so much to Mark Windows. Thank you, Mark. Um, have a great weekend there in Bulgaria. We will talk on Sunday. No, we won't. I'll do the uh, papers tomorrow. But the next live show will be the music show on Sunday. And then the Richie Allen Show will be live on Monday. At what time? What time? That's right. Four o'clock. Get it into your skull there, dear listener. All righty. Okay. Uh, closing out with Oasis today. I don't know why. It just felt like hearing this particular song. 
Thanks for everything you do to keep the independent media going. I really appreciate you. Have a fantastic weekend. Until next time, from your BBG in Salford, it's good night. Speak real soon. Bye now, bye now.